so much. And it's a great honor to be here with these wonderful speakers uh, on our panel today, as well as looking forward to some future events this evening. So I'm Michelle Bongiovanni, the founder of Heal Our World, which is a social impact nonprofit. Um, and we are, uh, apologies, social impact for profit and our nonprofit, which is Music for Climate Justice, which is launching today, actually this evening, live from the Marriott. Um, and so I've uh, been in the space for over seven years. Um, this is really my first COP. So excited to be here, even though remotely, uh, with the team to talk a little bit about the green economy today and some of the great work that everybody in this uh, panel uh, is really doing around those issues. So thank you and uh, excited to talk more. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you so much again for this great opportunity to be here with all of you um, at COP26. And Pita, Milan, would you like to go ahead next and tell us also where you're calling in from and a little bit about your background um, and why you're here today. Great, thanks, Emily. I'm Peter Milan. I'm actually calling in from Portugal, um, but I'm Australian, as you can hear in my accent. Um, I'm the founder, co-founder and CEO of Jet Group. Uh, we specialize in delivering regenerative practice to large corporates and public sector. I'm also the founder of Transcendent Media Capital, which is a and a company that's developing new methodologies for thematic-based investing into startups and ventures. And I'm also on the International Advisory Board for the World Sustainable Development Forum, and also uh, an Associate Fellow of the World Academy of Arts and Sciences. And I'm really delighted to be here today. Um, so thank you, Michelle, for inviting me. And I'm really looking forward to engaging in some really interesting dialogue around action. Great, thank you so much, Pita. It's such a pleasure to have you joining us here today and really excited to see where our future partnerships are gonna land as we build towards this green and regenerative economy together. Um, Yoshioka, yep. would you like to give a brief introduction uh, to yourself as the founder of Peaceboat and EcoShip and tell us a bit why you're here today? Okay, uh, then my name is Yoshioka and uh, I'm from Japan and I have started that, this Peaceboat program, 1983. And this is a quite unique program because uh, we are chartering the quite big ship. And uh, with uh, 1,000 people, we are continuing to global voyage the, every year, in year three times, and visiting the 100 countries. So on board is uh, we are full of the SDGs educational program. And also each port of call, we have the, the collaboration with the local NGOs and also local community and to promote about the green economy. So and for us, that is uh, something like uh, this uh, ship is a quite important tool to create kind of the sustainable world. So, and now, maybe that later on, my turn to explain about the new project, EcoShip. But anyway, thank you very much. Thank you so much. And I'm also gonna be speaking about Peaceboat. Um, as I mentioned, I'm based um, in New York City as the director of Peaceboat US. So we are both uh, collaborating on the same project. So we're gonna be starting with a little bit of an introduction to our organization and uh, how we are contributing also towards creating a more regenerative future and green economy. So maybe we can go ahead and uh, pull up some of the slides to get our presentation started today. Um, we're gonna be each speaking for a little bit about our own projects, uh, working towards uh, sustainability, and then we'll be taking some Q&A uh, at the end. So if you have questions, feel free to hold them towards the end and we'll, we'll go around the room. And also for those who are tuning in um, online. This is being live streamed today, so there are various people watching and tuning in, and we'll be happy to take those questions also uh, from our online portals. Mm -hmm. 
So, yes, as you all know, um, this event was sponsored by Heal the World um, and also a Music for Climate Justice um, with a focus on the green economy, working towards um, the contribution towards a low carbon and resource efficient and socially inclusive economy. Next, please. Um, here we have actually uh, Pita's presentation. So we're going to start with Pita. If we can uh, zoom her in to start with her first slides, that would be fantastic. Okay. Uh, thank you, everybody. So I'm here to talk about regenerative. What does that regenerative actually mean? Because this, uh, for me, is a new model of action. And it's actually not that new. We have Danella Meadows speaking about this type of stuff from the early 70s, but it just hasn't really been uh, identified as key to solving some of the challenges that we face. So when we look at regenerative, we're asked, we have these definitions of a living organism growing after loss or damage. We also have another alternative definition of bringing new and more vigorous life to an area, an industry or an institution. Um, reviving, especially in economic terms. So why are we talking about sustainability instead of regenerative and what is the difference? Next, please. Next slide. Yeah, thank you. So when we look at the trajectory of ecological design, we look at what has traditionally or conventionally been done. And we're looking at very, very technical systems design. Uh, we're looking at focus on efficiencies, focusing on technologies and techniques, focusing on very quantitative measures and results. Um, and this has led to the great acceleration. So when you look at the past 50 years and the increase in temperature on the planet and the mass extinction rates that have occurred, it has come about through our conventional methodologies, which are largely extractive in nature. So the basis of economics that we adopt as our truths here um, uh, that we compete for scarce resources, we get as much as we can, take as much as we can for as low cost as we can and do it as quickly as we can because that's what we call scale. Um, and this has led to this type of um, degeneration. So green is still a little degenerating and the reason for that is it's not yet value adding. We're talking about how do we have less carbon? How do we do less emissions? How do we have less waste? Um, and so Regenerative is really trying to move us towards a value-adding basis. And sustainability is neutral. What are we sustaining? Who's asking that question? Are we trying to sustain practices that create the conditions that are not conducive to the whole of life? Why? So we need to look, what is really beyond sustainability? Like, are we trying to sustain business as usual, but without making things worse? I mean, I think some of these bigger questions need to be asked. And then we have restorative. We're starting to move into the regenerative space here um, where we're restoring rainforests. We're trying to restore um, soil, nutritional value, these types of things. Um, and it takes a long time. But regenerative is different because it focuses on how we think. It focuses on understanding ourselves as part of a living complex system because we are but we're taught at school to not really like complexity too much because it's too too big and and too much and so we break it down into its parts and pieces and then try to understand it a bit like a doctor who's a specialist in a heart but then another doctor who's a specialist with the brain I might have you know a heart arrhythmia the heart doctor says there's nothing wrong but it could be an issue with my brain and it's not detected because they don't speak to each other these types of things we do this also in business and we do this also in our lives so regenerative starts to look at 
living systems design, it starts to identify simplicity through the patterns that we can identify. It focuses on effectiveness, and this is a really important distinction that I'll talk about. Um, and, and some of the measures are more qualitative. Um, so could you move to the next slide, please? So what is not effective action? I really like this picture because it reminds me of the French knights from the Monty Python movie, the, the Holy Grail, where they're standing behind the wall and they're throwing things at the other knights. And we find this in business, but we also find this with investors as well. Um, no, I'm not going to invest. I only invest in technology. No, I'm only investing in green, you know, sustainable energy. Uh, no, I don't understand media. Media has no value and all these kinds of things. And when we work within organizations, we see this a lot because JET has a very strong technology arm of our business where we support our clients too. And we find that business doesn't understand technology or IT and IT doesn't understand business and all these fragmentations happen. So what's the impact of all of this siloed fragmented mentality that we've been taught to see things through? Next slide, please. So we see that these are global statistics. 75% of investments made by venture capitalists fail. But what does that mean in real terms? There was 300 billion spent by the end of 2020 in venture capital. Between 70 to 90% of mergers and acquisitions fail. The deals surpassed 4.3 trillion as of October this year. It's expected to exceed 6 trillion by the end of the year. 70% of change management programs fail. Financial institutions are spending on average 14% of their annual operating costs on change management processes. And 73% of digital transformation processes fail to deliver value. And that spending will catapult to over 6.8 trillion by 2023. That's the expectation. So for those of us who don't like waste, that's really sad. It's a lot of wasted money, right? On things that fail to deliver. And so when you look at the fragmentation and, and the fight that we have, the biggest climate impact is, is, is coming from industry. It's coming from, from the corporate world. Yet we're so protective about doing things the way we've always done them, best practices. But this is where we're seeing it's not actually delivering value, not for the business. So why are we defending it? And most certainly not for the planet. So let's have a look at what does effective action actually look, look like? Because when we talk about we need action, it's not just action for action's sake. We need to be effective. Next slide, please. So when, I'm, I'm borrowing this from Danella Meadows. So she identified back in the early 2000s leverage points across a system. If we're looking at systemic transformation, this is what we need to mitigate our climate crisis not just small tactical interventions, right? And so when we're looking at the scale, this is not super linear, right? Because obviously in a regenerative system, you always uh, look at something in its own context. But we spend 95% of our time focusing on, you know, the details, the parameters, the numbers, the subsidies, the, the, the best practices, the things that we do and how we do them but they actually have the least amount of leverage on the system. And as we go up to the points of highest leverage, which is where JET's working, we're also looking at um, the, the structure of information. Okay, we have so much data out there. How much money is companies spending on AI right now? But what is the data that we actually need? 
how do we interpret the data? How, how do we make that data effective for our own purposes and for the purposes of the, the planet? We don't have those answers right now because we're still perceiving the data from the point 12 in terms of functional analysis. Then we're looking at, you know, who has, what are the rules of the system? How are our systems currently functioning? How do they interact and exchange with each other? Because we live like they're truths. They're not truths. We made it up. We made up economic theory. We hypothesized some things, and we've seen since the 1990s many of our economic truths failing, yet we're not questioning the system, right? Um, and then we look at the structure um, the, the, and the power to add, change, or evolve, or self-organize the system, and this is fundamentally important. Um, can we go to the next slide, please? Because what we're talking about is a transitional from functional thinking to epistemological. Epistemological is the way that we see things, okay? And when I'm talking with a lot of colleagues uh, who are working in systems change or working regenerative or sustainability, or even in some of these areas like mergers and acquisitions, I was speaking to a leader from one of the big Fortune 500 companies. They acquired a company for three billion. It had the potential to be worth 30 billion, but it was still owner operated and the merger was failing. Why? Because it's to do with people. People are complex and always at the people level, things break down and we don't know how to solve it. But that's why regenerative works in nested systems. So we work with self, we work with the group, and then we work it with the system, but it's not linear. We're running, operating those things parallel. So when we work with organizations, we're working with boards and C-suite who are challenging the way they think using our frameworks and methodologies, but then that's shifting how the group functions. And then that, that's also then shifting how the system functions at the same time. So we work in nested systems. Um, can we move to the next one, please? And so when we look at that, it's really, really super important because it's focusing on culture, the culture of how we behave, the culture of how we view the world. And we need to start there in order to create a systemic strategy. And then the leadership has to be developmental. We have to be constantly learning and growing and adapting and challenging our perspective as we go. Um, Unfortunately, our dependency on best practices means that we just lean on what's always been done without really innovating. And then we can get to you know, the strategic implementation of what it is that we're doing. And what we find is when we work this process with organizations or even um, large uh, associations and whatnot, the, the way that the whole being of that organization starts to shift and that's how you get that systemic change. Um, next slide, please. And the reason is, is because we focus on place first. Every place has its own unique potential. And every place is a living, breathing organism. An organization is a living, breathing organism. It's made up of interactive, growing and developing, evolving parts, people, departments. Um, a community is a living, breathing organism. And we don't relate to it like it is. So we need to acknowledge that every living, breathing organism is unique. You know, what makes Michelle Michelle cannot be completely replicated. There are th things that she has had experiences of, her past, her worldview, um, her histories, her stories, her religions, her belief systems, all these types of things that make her unique, right? She's a living, breathing organism. She has her own unique potential. Then as collectives, it's also the same. 
A sense of place has its own unique potential. So what is that? So we ground things in place first. And from there, we start to understand that there is a potential to shift the business model. So many of my colleagues have been working for 20 years in carbon credit trading. This hasn't shifted anything. All we've done is commoditized carbon. It hasn't created, it hasn't accelerated a green, green transition. It's regulators that are coming in now and bashing down doors that are making people do things differently. So what we need is not more of these types of economic structures that are more of the same. We need to shift our business models. And from there, real innovation can happen, like really thinking outside the square. And that, that's when finally we get to those tactical interventions that, you know, back on the leverage point slide I showed you, which is where we spend 95% of our time. We do that further downstream and we get there by coming from a totally different context. Um, so I think that's the end, if I remember rightly. Next slide, please. It's the end. So, so that's, I really wanted to talk today about action. We're here for action. The time for talking is over. But I think we need to ask ourselves, what kind of action? What action is actually going to be effective? Because doing for the sake of doing will not help the transition. Thank you. Thank you, Peter, for that wonderful presentation. And I really loved what you said about uh, you know, community-centric action. It's so important to look at the communities around us and to find what is the most appropriate action, what is most related to their place and purpose and how we can support each other uh, towards building a more sustainable future. So I think that links really nicely also into our next presentation. So thank you for that great introduction and background um, on how we can work together. So let's give a round of applause for Pizza. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Great, and if we can just go ahead and pull up the next slide, please. Um, We'll go ahead into explaining a little bit about also one of our partners, uh, who is the Blue Planet Alliance. Um, and although they're not uh, here in this venue today, we will be seeing them later this afternoon at the Marriott Hotel. And um, we have uh, this event right here featured on the screen that shows the great title and enthusiastic uh, explanation that we are doing this. And the reason why the name we are doing this came about is because the Blue Planet Alliance has been working towards uh, promoting 100% renewable energy. Uh, the Blue Planet Foundation, first of all, was started in Hawaii, and they worked to create the first mandate to have Hawaii reach 100% renewable energy by 2045. And they reached that through community efforts, through NGOs, through private public partnerships, and working with local government officials. And once they reached that mandate, they thought, not only can Hawaii be an example of how we can reach solar and wind energy to be the main resource and work towards 100% renewables, but they also want to help other island nations and other communities to follow suit. So after Hawaii, uh, California was the next uh, state to declare that they are working towards 100% renewables. And this evening and also in the afternoon, we're going to be having talks and presentations at the Marriott Hotel, followed by a reception. Uh, well, they'll be uh, speaking with various government officials and recognizing those governments who are working towards now the 2045 target of reaching 100% renewable energy. So that even though many of us are understanding that governments are finding it difficult to sometimes come to those decisions and partnerships that are actually making the strides towards renewables, they are saying that we are doing this. We are making those strides. And everyone here at COP is here because we care and we have initiatives that are working towards the same goals. So 
together, we can make that impact. Um, and this event is sponsored by Music for Climate Justice, EarthX, and Blue Planet Alliance. And we'll be working together this afternoon and evening. I invite all of you to join us there um, to learn about what we are doing to achieve that 100% renewable energy target. So we look forward to that today. Um, so if we can, uh, we'll go ahead to the next one. And this will be a short um, presentation by video, I believe. So we'll see if this can come up on the screen. When you learn about Hawaii's 100% renewable energy law and see how successful the program has become, you'll realize it makes sense for virtually every island community. Island communities are impacted in a much, much um, bigger way by climate change and global warming. We see the impacts every day and we know the devastation will be coming if we don't take action. For generations, we've been spending billions of dollars exporting that money out of our economy to import fossil fuels. You know, I think the biggest thing we faced trying to pass a 100% clean energy mandate was that people didn't believe that it was possible. We thought it was impossible. You know, remember that Hawaii was the most dependent state in the country on imported fossil fuel. It just didn't make any sense to agree to a 100% renewable commitment. Nobody makes a decision like this on their own. So everybody said we couldn't do it, but I've never believed in obstacles that couldn't be overcome. And we, as human beings, have always overcome obstacles. When Hank and I first met each other, uh, and I was first introduced to Blue Planet, um, my initial reaction was, what, what is he talking about, right? Who, who is this guy pushing 100% renewables and we have to get off of fossil fuel faster? And there was definitely some early headbutting. No one had really analyzed a 100% uh, clean energy scenario in Hawaii. So we knew setting a goal that was you know, 30 years hence, was, it was doable. When we harvest energy from the sun or from our wind or from other local renewable resources, that value, that economic value, that money stays in our economy. What we found when we actually did it was that the economic benefits were far greater than we ever imagined. It took us three years of introducing bills to actually get 100% clean energy bill passed, and there was definitely resistance. After years of effort, the breakthrough came in 2015. The last state became the first state to commit to 100% clean energy. This morning, the governor signed a law requiring all of Hawaii's electricity to be produced from renewable energy sources by the year 2045. Supporters say it could take some getting used to, but it will save customers millions of dollars in the long run. As an electrical engineer, I knew that, that we would uh, have the technology available. The 100% law was really a game changer for Hawaii. Uh, and we're, we're able to achieve it at a price far less than business as usual and at a rate that's faster than anyone anticipated. You know, today we're way ahead of our goals for reaching 100% clean energy. And we're going to do it at cost savings of billions and billions of dollars for local residents. So what was really exciting was others quickly followed. Three short years after Hawaii adopted its 100% clean energy law, California followed suit. I think any jurisdiction, any country on this planet has the ability to go 100% renewable. Don't wait. If you're an island nation state, uh, if you're like Hawaii, uh, think of it like a uh, agriculture harvest, the power from the sun, the power from the ocean, the power from the wind, 
and use those resources to power your country with modern electricity. When you're comparing it to like a, a diesel-fired energy system, it's not too hard to actually beat that from an economic perspective. We are actually seeing combinations of new technologies that are more cost-effective than our fossil fuel plants. We're improving the environment, saving the planet, uh, and reducing the cost of energy here all at the same time. And I'm committed to helping each and every one of you uh, find the same path. In 2007, I started the Blue Planet Foundation to end the use of carbon-based fuels starting in Hawaii. Today, I'm starting the Blue Planet Alliance in New York to do the same thing, but for the rest of the planet. Because the problems that we have to solve are worldwide problems, not just problems of Hawaii. Renewable energy technology is here now, ready to provide power for island communities 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, without burning a drop of fossil fuel. You can accomplish your area, your island, your city, to go 100% renewable energy. That will be your legacy. And your children and your grandchildren in the future, they will thank you. This is something that you can do for them. Beautiful. Creating a world in which humanity and nature live in harmony. Let's give a round of applause for Blue Planet Alliance. And they're one of the main partners from today's event. And uh, as I mentioned, they will be speaking later this evening at the Marriott Hotel. And Hank Rogers, who is the visionary and founder of Blue Planet Alliance, he mentioned in this video uh, that they just launched in New York. And one of the reasons that they are starting um, to become more global is because of their success story from Hawaii, which you just saw here in this video, is something that they want to share with all of the small island developing states. So they'll be working very closely with all the ambassadors who are to the permanent missions at the United Nations based in New York and helping to not only export um, their technology of solar and wind energy, but also ideas and grassroots organizations that can work together to help islands achieve this 100% renewable energy initiative uh, by 2045. So we're really pleased to work with them and to support this initiative also from Peace Boat. So thank you so much for um, sharing that short video message. And next I would like to just introduce a little bit more about our organization, um, which has been sailing the world for more than 38 years um, with a message for the sustainable development goals and climate action. This is the Peace Boat ship, uh, which has been now uh, carrying more than 1,000 participants on board, visiting 20 countries every three months. Our main headquarters is based in Tokyo, Japan, which is where Yoshioka is also based. And as I mentioned, I'm based in New York. I also have my colleague Yasna, who is here uh, from Zurich, Switzerland. And we have uh, various volunteers and staff members working with us all around the world to make these global voyages take place. Um, so as we travel, we are working with nonprofit organizations, NGO leaders, youth, indigenous communities, and also the private sector, as well as governments in each of the communities that we visit. And you can see here, there are three different lines on this map. Uh, starting from Japan, the red line uh, follows more of a northern hemisphere voyage and goes up into uh, the Suez Canal, Mediterranean, and into the fjords up in Norway and Finland, for example, and crosses through the Panama Canal. And the green line, which you can see on the bottom, is more of a southern hemisphere voyage, uh, focusing on Southeast Asia, going down to South Africa, Namibia, over to Brazil, Argentina, and Chile, sailing through the fjords of Patagonia. And each of these voyages, as I mentioned, we're visiting around 20 countries, so 20 different coastal communities that we're engaging with uh, to support their initiatives and to learn more about how we can work together to achieve a more sustainable world. 
On board the ship, we have guest speakers who give lectures and workshops about so many important topics. And as Peaceboat has now been sailing for, as I mentioned, also 38 years, we've taken so many guest speakers on board uh, to share their messages for peace and sustainability. And we also serve as an NGO. Um, we are a nonprofit organization that's based in New York, but also a social business in Japan. So when we think about the green economy, we also think about how can businesses be more inclusive? How can we also highlight the different themes that our partners want to talk about in their communities and bring those into the business aspects? Um, Peaceboat now also sails with the Nobel Peace Prize on board. We are part of the steering committee of ICANN, which is the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, uh, which received the 2017 Nobel Peace Prize. And so we sail with that Peace Prize on board. And you can see here um, that we visit more than 100 ports in more than 80 countries. So we're quite an international organization and we're always striving to achieve more each and every year. On board the ship, uh, we focus many uh, of our programs on youth initiatives. So I wanted to highlight here our Youth for the SDGs program, which focuses on young people ages 18 to 30 years old who are working towards the SDGs so they can come on board the ship and share those best practices and also shared challenges and solutions to creating a more um, climate positive uh, future. And just in this photo on the left here, uh, Sylvia Cantu, I'll just highlight her because she's here at COP right now. She's from Mexico. Uh, she was one of our Youth for the SDG scholars. And then she was able to join the Mexican delegation here as one of the negotiators at COP. So I'm really proud of her efforts and it's great to see her transition also into uh, becoming a global leader uh, for climate action. Peaceboat sails with the SDGs logo on the hull of our ship. And all of our Youth for the SDGs scholars, when they join us, they really choose which SDGs are important to them and what are the actions that they're going to take into making those SDGs become reality. And so with that, I'd like to show a short video about what Peaceboat is doing now for the Sustainable Development Goals. Thank you. I hope that gave you a brief overview that Peaceboat is working on all of the 17 uh, Sustainable Development Goals. 
And um, as we use our ship as a venue for education and raising awareness and also building those partnerships, for us, SDG 17 is incredibly important uh, because without partnerships, uh, you know, nothing is possible. And that's one of the reasons why sure. we're here at COP is to continue to build those partnerships. So we do look forward to meeting all of you at, during the Q&A session and learning about what you're doing also for the SDGs and seeing how we can collaborate together. Um, and with that, I would like to uh, pass the microphone over to Yoshioka Tatsuya, the founder of PeaceBoat, so you can introduce a bit more about EcoShip and PeaceBoat's transition to a more sustainable future uh, for the business and also for our organization. Thank you, Emily. So uh, again, thank you very much for coming here and uh, to joining this session. And uh, briefly, that's, uh, I hope that you can understand the PeaceBoat activity and so on. But uh, I have started this program when I was 23 years old when I was very young and a student. And uh, I really feel in my life that the encouragement to the young people is a very important, I think. Otherwise, that there is no core of the energy to change this world in a sustainable direction. I really believe so. So, and this, uh, the Peace World Cruise, the Peace World Voyage is one of the method of that. So, but uh, unfortunately, our ship is not completely clean ship. Passenger ship is, uh, the, you know, have to use the fossil fuel now. So that is a huge, my, the frustration. Why the, we have to use this uh, ship? But the, it is no ship in the world still. That is, a, of course, a small ship is okay, but uh, several hundred people's the, the voyage is uh, if we would like to organize such kind of the, uh, the educational voyage, we really need the kind of innovative the ship. And on the other hand, as you know, that how many the big tankers or the big cargo ship, do you know completely clean energy? Not yet. But why not yet? That the car is a, the, you know, mask and not only him, that all over the world now that start to produce that the 100 the, uh, clean energy car. Why not the ship? That, and uh, also, I would like to add, uh, add, ocean is a key factor for the climate change, climate crisis. We have to save the, the ocean, seriously. So in that case, why not? We try to imagine or they really make efforts to build the eco ship. So I would like to introduce our eco ship now. This one, this is also still not 100% the clean energy. And but this future and this image is, I really believe, start to create of the we can do to create the really 100% renewable energy ship and the ocean transportation. This is a solar, uh, this is, but uh, this is not joke. Huh? We are spending the seven years that is uh, already very, the Liao uh, design and uh, engineering test we are doing. So at any time, we can start to build. That is the situation. So maybe we prepare the video. Oh, okay. Ah, anyway, the little bit, let, let me explain about that. And one of the quite uh, important points is this sail. The 10 sail, and, but this is also solar panel. The wind, uh, wind power, to utilize the wind power, and at the same time, the solar power. Next, please. Oh, this one, next. Okay, my, anyway. That's a, and also that's an integrate of the more nature on the ship. 
And because that's also, I really would like to make an opportunity the people who join this ship, the feeling about what is the nature and what is necessary for our life. And uh, in this, uh, the, let's say, botanical garden on board, the, we are also making the, the hydroponic the facility and to create a vegetable and so on. And the people is uh, surviving, not surviving, enjoying the life on board, but sustainable way. The, like a circular economic, that is also that the green economy, of course. Huh? Next, please. Yeah, and uh, of course, and the water and the waste is completely, the, you know, recycled the, in the ship. Ship is like a small planet. Oh, we have to survive on board the, the 100 days. And that experience is really people can start to understand that, that, wow, this planet also same. We have to consider about how to spend the waste energy. Next, please. And also, <laughs> this is a very strong my dream. I think COP conference should not be here, should not be on land. They should be on board and feel the nature and atmosphere and ocean and start to discuss about how to save this planet. I think that is a very necessary. That is a something like a, we really need, we have to now start the kind of the really start to feel this planet crisis and discuss and find a solution. So, and that's why my dream is that the COPEX is on board. Okay, and the video. Okay. No, not video. <laughs> okay, next please. Uh, video. Sorry. Oh, yeah. And now that the solar sail is retracted, now only solar panel working, not wind power now. And each the oh yeah. This is an olive tree. Peace boat is a symbol of the peace. So an olive tree is a symbol of the peace. Ah, and this is theater. Uh, and also that uh, this uh, sports area is a kinetic floor and uh, by basketball you can create uh, energy, electric, electric energy. And the disco also, we are the kinetic floor that we will use and uh, we can produce uh, energy.
Thank you. I hope you like this shape. And uh, also, the, at the end, I really would like to the, emphasize that uh, we will organize a three times world cruise by this ship. That is our the plan. So it means that is that 100 countries we can visit every year by this ship. So and I really think consider about that uh, kind of the the awareness raising effect. That is that if this ship is coming in a port or your city, the people can start to understand that wow, and uh, wow, this kind of thing is possible. So why not? We can make more efforts about that. So anyway, that is, uh, I really hope that uh, this ship can be the game changer very soon. Thank you. Thank you, Yoshioka. Thank you so much for introducing EcoShip. Raise your hand if you'd like to join us for COP on the EcoShip in the future. All right. Well, I would Thank love you. to have you all on board. Thank you. For me too, it's a dream to sail on the EcoShip, really promoting and embodying the message of sustainability as a flagship for the SDGs. So. Uh, we look forward to partnering with all of you and really building this together. Not only will the EcoShip be the vessel for Peace Builds activities, but it's a convening space for conferences and workshops and education for all of your organizations and businesses and the activities that you all are working so hard to bring to light here at COP. We hope that we can also share those uh, through our, our ship around the world. Um, so I would like to also talk about now um, Michelle's project of Heal Our World, which she also has been excited to bring to the Peace Boat in the future. So if we can bring uh, Michelle back in by Zoom, I'd love to have her talk a little bit about music for climate justice and her goals here at COP. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, Emily. Uh, so number one, uh, Yoshioka, I think my dream would be to be on the Peace Boat for the next COP for sure. <laughs> I think many of us would dream to be on that Peace Boat. Yeah. Um, beautiful uh, presentation uh, by both of, of uh, all three of you. Um, so I'm really honored to be here today and talk to you a little bit about uh, the work that I'm doing. Uh, since having left corporate America and in sort of the financial sector, I really wanted to use my background to make a difference. And so I've always been in innovation. I admire a lot what Hank said which is that and if anyone tells me it can't be done, I'm gonna find a way to do it. And that's probably more of an incentive than anything. Um, and so what I'm here to talk about are a couple of our programs. Um, first and foremost, uh, Heal Our World. And so when we think about what, what Pita uh, talked a bit about, right? In order to facilitate systemic change, uh, you know, we need to think about mindsets, right? And will being um, what is the potential of the system? And, you know, there's tremendous potential. Uh, but if we continue to do things the way they are, we know the system is broken. In particular, what I'm really passionate about is supporting small and mid-sized enterprises globally that are critical to the achievement of the sustainable development goals and who absolutely have a lack of funding. There's over $5 trillion um, in lack of funding uh, internationally, just internationally for SMEs, right? According to the World Bank, they cannot get access to fairly priced capital. And what's extremely frustrating to me is many women owned organizations or minority owned organizations cannot access capital. And then if you add on the layer of them being in the impact space, 
there becomes another whole layer as Peter very well articulated earlier with investors, right? So there's this, well, this doesn't fit into my box here and this doesn't fit there. Oh, and you're woman owned or you're minority owned, you're getting 2% of, uh, less than 2% of venture capital funding. So I am here to change that if I can in any way that I can and to showcase those businesses who are committed to the SDGs and to our planet um, and, and for me, if we can create that kind of systemic change, we will, we will have done a great thing in the world. Um, and I, my goal is, and what my research has shown through Dun & Bradstreet is, once I put together this database of these companies from around the world, 1.2 million of them, we looked at how they looked from a credit perspective. And I knew going into this that theoretically, they should come out looking much stronger than the average business because of the way that they're run, their values, the employee, um, you know, uh, the way they treat employees and, and, and the like. And so what we were able to find was that on average, our businesses committed to sustainability and the SDGs are uh, three times more credit worthy than the average business huge finding in the space, um, which has not gotten the attention I really would have liked, uh, but we're, we're really excited to do more around that and to say that we need to get that fairly priced capital to those businesses. It's critical. So um, without further ado, I wanna show you a little bit about not us, but about our businesses because they will inspire you um, and you'll begin to see the pattern of the heart that really exists within these organizations. So if we could just go to the uh, video at this point. is calling out for help. But who will answer? What can I do? What can I do? What can I do? What can I do? Imagine. We're really trying to make an effort within the communities. So that's been a huge spirit behind what we've done at Indigenous and a lot of the work that we've done here in Peru. Any clothing manufacturing base starts off in somebody's garage in that sense. You know, and, and I use the term sometimes urban garage. There are group leaders and knitting teams that actually renovate a room in their house or use their garage for the knitters to work in and that is in a sense their factory. When you are a poor people you need to work but also you have uh, children, you have your family and it's very difficult to deal you know with these two things. Keeping this as a model you know all the cases that we could help uh, to grow in their own houses and to begin their own businesses work very well. One machine then the second machine, then the third machine, you know. So we are seeing clearly that this model is working very well. I'm at Mallorca Coffee in Rockville, and the CEO of 
the company, Martin Mayorga, is different than your average CEO. He's not in it just to make money. He wants to make a difference in the lives of Latin American farmers. You know, what we do for our family, we'd like to do for our consumers. Yeah, we put a lot of time and energy and sourcing you know, products and food and ingredients for our family. Those that have like vitality, energy, life in them. And it's beautiful to be here in places like the Sacred Valley, Machu Picchu, where that type of energy and life is, and pride is put into everything that they do, everything that they grow, from their crops all the way to their land, to the love of the environment, the mountains. There's a lot of love and respect in this area. Our mission from the get-go was to create livelihoods for indigenous farmers and to work with indigenous communities to source native products and share those with communities up in the United States. But more importantly, that we really think not just about the whole systems and needs of the farmers and the ecosystems they're a part of, but also about what the future could look like. Overfishing and its associated environmental and social impacts is perhaps the biggest sustainability challenge we face after climate change. Restaurants have got to start looking at MSC because they can keep small fisheries like this going for years to come. I work for RMIT University Vietnam. We have over 5,000 students and staff, most commuting on gas motorbikes every day. Imagine the difference if people rode clean, quiet, zero tailpipe emissions electric scooters. At RMIT, we are developing an electric scooter share program that will allow access to environmentally friendly transportation for students and staff. I wanted to change my life. I ain't know where to start or where to go. I even know right down the street was the Graceton Bakery. I knew it was there. It was just that they gave me the opportunity. Since I've been at Graceton, I changed. I did a 360 on my life. I got three bank accounts. To me, it ain't all about the money. It's about being a man and doing the right thing. Imagine the impact your decisions can have when you choose consciously. What can I do? What can I do? What can I do? Support our sustainable business network of companies committed to people, planet, and profit. Help ignite a global movement by voting with your dollars. Imagine that together we can heal our world with every purchase. By combining best of breed technology drivers to create the greatest social impact that gives sustainable small businesses from around the world a platform to tell their stories through a community that unites shoppers, investors, sustainable SMEs, and corporates in a mission to support people, planet, and profit. Helping to transform the multi-trillion dollar global e-commerce market into a force for good. Imagine a social impact community like no other Imagine heal our world. The world is calling out for help. The answer must come from all of us. or an ideal, or acts to improve the lot of others, or strikes out against injustice, 
he sends forth a tiny ripple of hope and crossing each other from a million different centers of energy and daring. Those ripples build a current which can sweep down the mightiest walls of oppression and resistance. Please join us at healourworld.com. So thank you. Um, next, uh, next slide, please. And I'm going to just take you through a great example um, of just being present digitally with this platform. Uh, we, we've been given an opportunity, I feel, to make a transformational difference. And I'm hoping with PETA's support, I can do that. Not an area that I ever really knew much about. Um, is the next slide up? I'm just making sure the Tesla the Tesla hospital, uh, uh, prior slide, sorry. There we go. So uh, this is a great example of the potential of the system. So the Tesla Cancer Hospital in Nairobi, Kenya is an initiative that's tried to raise capital for years now, unfortunately. And they couldn't get any interest from funders uh, despite their amazing business plan and the amount of money they put in, um, their, their CEO is a woman doctor, Dr. Gladwell, uh, who's done a phenomenal job in envisioning this, not only as a cancer hospital for breast cancer treatment, but also as an educational institution to begin to really train doctors locally, because that's one of the biggest issues in terms of serving uh, the African population um, in terms of breast cancer in particular. And so next slide. I began to see that really looking at this, this is a huge issue in Africa. And breast cancer is nearly 28% of all cancer cases. Um, the women who have money are forced to travel out of country, usually going to India for care which is very difficult on their families, as you can imagine. And those who don't have money just remain untreated. Um, it's a complete travesty. Uh, next slide, please. So ironically, you know, as I got involved and I tried to start to raise money to help them, uh, uh, this cancer hospital, I got very intrigued about, you know, how do I bring in the right partners and ecosystem that can create major change here. Um, and so I did so with just the contacts that I had myself. So I brought in the IFC only to find out that they were working on this strategy for an ecosystem approach. But this is a real case here that we can leverage as a prototype uh, for other, other regions of Africa, certainly. And then I brought in Siemens. Um, and I brought in Roche. And what's the irony of it all is that, you know, typically Roche and Siemens don't ever work together. They're considered competitors, right? And what we worked out in this scenario was, listen, guys, if Siemens focuses on the equipment that's needed and Roche fo focuses on the pharmaceuticals, we can all coexist in this ecosystem and make a huge difference with this one unit and then have a bigger vision. So um, uh, this is a great example. Everybody has come together. Um, there, there's funding in discussion now to support this. And we want to take this model 
and really work on how will this be, create local jobs, local economy? Um, how will we be able to support through education and tutorials so that people understand what they need to do and what that process looks like and how we can support them? How do we leverage technology to bring in doctors from all over the world? So even if they're not physically there, they can begin to help while we're building out and training doctors. You know, so this is something I'm extremely proud of. And it's just an example of the possible when we think beyond, right? And we look at new ways of doing things, not the traditional same old, same old. Um, next slide, please. And so, you know, my uh, new campaign that we launched on Tuesday evening is called Together We Can. And we really do believe that despite what happens here with governments uh, and the like, we as citizens and as people of the world uh, really have tremendous power, more power than I think we even give ourselves credit for. Um, you know, we really have the opportunity to say, no, we're gonna do things differently. We're gonna vote with our dollars uh, or whatever currency we might be in with our money for a better world. Frankly, we can choose the companies we choose to purchase from. We can choose to invest our money wisely and know where every dime is going because that's our responsibility to this planet. So there's a lot that we together can do. And so my hope out of this COP conference is there'll be a lot of negative news. We all know that, right? But let's focus on the positive and what we can do together to make a difference because every one of us has a beautiful voice that can. That can. So uh, next slide, please. So tonight, I, um, I'm very proud to announce um, a new project through our nonprofit because one of my passions is really addressing resiliency and adaptation. And if you think about who are the most impacted uh, individuals from climate change, it's the most marginalized. Climate injustice is real and it's the indigenous and it's black and brown communities globally and it's our children. And I, I said the other night, you know, UNICEF just came out with a study where 1 billion, so one third of all the children uh, of the world are going to be severely impacted from climate change. This is real. So we need to start now raising capital and money and making a difference for the lives of those most affected, helping them move, helping them, uh, you know, really get uh, started somewhere else. And that's the mission of Music for Climate Justice. It's a nonprofit. Um, what we were trying to do is not, not another typical A-list musical concert, but to engage global musicians in a very big way to lend their voices because there's nothing that creates unity more than music. And what we've been just um, humbled by the outpouring of musicians. We have over 350 musicians participating from all over the world. We had to break up into eight sessions, four hours a night. We couldn't even accommodate it all. Um, it was just, it, it was shocking and it's beautiful. And it's, it's a testament to the human spirit. And so I encourage you all to join us. Um, uh, tonight we'll be launching Music for Climate Justice on our digital platform, eventsmusicforclimatejustice.org, 7.30 p.m. Um, GMT. And uh, I'd like to just play for you uh, uh, just a brief little uh, video about that. And thank you all. I hope you can join us. Thank you.
Thank you, thank you, Michelle. And congratulations for your launch of Music for Climate Justice here at COP26. I think, you know, this is a monumental uh, time in history to really bring um, climate justice to the forefront of everything that we're doing, whether it be through music and the arts or through our activities, such as through the Peace Boat um, or, you know, working towards a regenerative future, like Pita mentioned in her presentation. Uh, now is the time, and we all know that. That's why we're here at COP. Uh, but these partnerships are really crucial to achieving uh, climate justice. So thank you so much for all your efforts here. Um, and we have a, just a few more minutes here left of um, our time at the Nature Positive um, Hub. And we wanted to open up the floor for a little bit for questions. And so I know that we also have some people tuning in online. Uh, perhaps you can send in your questions uh, via the virtual platform. Or for anybody here in the audience um, who would like to uh, just reflect a little bit on the presentations that you heard, or if you have any questions, whether it be for Michelle, Pita, or Yoshioka here um, present, uh, we'd be happy to answer those for you. So please feel free to uh, raise your hand if you'd like to ask a question, and we can either pass the mic around or you can come up uh, to the front and join us. Do we have any questions or comments or reflections here from the presentations? Yes. Thank you so much for, for uh, thank you. Thank you so much for, for all of these uh, presentations. Uh, I have a question for Pita. Um, so I was just wondering, uh, you know, with this innovation in how we're investing in new ideas and solutions, do you have any suggestions for what universities can do to, to really support that process? Because I know. Um, I know that Yashoka uh, mentioned that he started the idea when he was um, in college, and so I'd love to just hear some thoughts about how we can in integrate this into, into what educational institutions are doing. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for your question. It's a great question. Um, we are looking at how uh, this type of regenerative work can factor into education more powerfully. Um, I'm noticing my son who is 18 and studying economics and, and really struggling with the material, not because the material is hard, but because it feels a little anti-intuitive to him in terms of how the world works. Um, so I think, you know, to, to really be able to engage um, students in dialogue and, and each country will be different, right? Depending on where the university is. So we would we would really like look at what is unique about the place and start engaging students actively in workshops that are regenerative in nature that enable them to start innovating, understanding their unique potential of place and, and looking at what can then be developed out of those workshops for them, which will inspire them into new careers or into new, uh, you know, bring in new innovation to the market and whatnot. And if we're able to do that, one of the areas that I'm shifting the idea of investing is to shift it out of sectors and industries or projects even, and start looking at themes. So with TMC, we've broken up into four core themes, which is earth, youth, peace, security, and stability and gender. 
and then we map all the leverage points across those systems through extensive stakeholder engagement. And obviously it's a co-evolving process, right? We learn more, things change, we understand more, there's more inputs and outputs. But what we can do is we can then start driving capital towards themes. So our first uh, fund that we've put together is a peace, security and stability theme. Uh, where all of the different ventures within that network or ecosystem work together in a sense, in an ecosystem sense, um, to contribute to the transformation of that issue on the planet. And uh, so if we can start shifting how we think about things out of these silos um, and start developing more multidisciplinary courses at school, uh, more multidisciplinary projects at school, start using some regenerative like models and practice and start looking at things interrelationally. We start really building that intelligence back again that we have intuitively, but has kind of been schooled out of us, <laughs> you know, po post-industrial revolution, um, to start really engaging with environments more powerfully, our own and others. So that would be my suggestion is it needs to be, you know, really looking at how are we building our curriculums, what types of alternative or extracurricular things can we put together for our students and how can we actively engage them in, you know, really regenerative thinking, starting to engage in, in innovation, removing or, you know, letting go of the constraints of our traditional education. Thank you, Peter. And that's such a great um, idea that you just mentioned about, you know, removing the restrictions. And I think that's a big part of, you know, innovation can really only come when you're in that creative environment. You're thinking about the place that you're in, the people that you need to serve, and also what are the solutions that you can get to that final answer of really creating a more sustainable future. And I think that, you know, as uh, we also mentioned, Yoshoka founding Peace Boat during that university time was because they needed a solution that was not present at the time, so they decided to create their own. And I think also part of our Youth for the SDGs program, that's what we like to instill in our students as well, is capacity building, how to be innovative in these times where there's so many climate challenges and the crisis seems so great and so overwhelming. You know, there's a lot of people talking about um, the you know uh, kind of depression about the climate and, and the lack of ability to feel like you can make change. but with the idea of positive action and innovation and creativity, I feel like we can kind of overcome any challenge. Even like Hank mentioned in his message, you know, we have always overcome obstacles and we will continue to overcome those obstacles and create uh, innovative ideas. So I think that that's really important in working towards that regenerative future. Thank you for that question. Um, and is there another question here in the audience that we can take from anyone here? We have at least another 10, 15 minutes, so feel free uh, to raise your hand if you'd like to ask anything about Peace Vote. Yes. You can pass in the back. Hello. We actually have a question from a YouTube viewer. Her name's Catherine. Uh, she's asking how, uh, this is actually for Yoshoka. Uh, how do the educational programs uh, offered on board Peace Boats ships uh, pr transcend into people's daily lives? Uh, what kind of educational programs might be offered aboard the ship? Uh, okay. Uh, that is uh, the quite variety of the education. We can do that. For example, the, we are seriously organizing about the global university program. So, and one cruise, one the voyage is uh, one semester, and that is one way. But also, that uh, we are really focused about that many uh, teenager, the students, but uh, they cannot the how, how to say they, they they refuse to go to the no usual school in their community. 
and uh, in Japan also that is very increasing. And uh, so, and we organize a kind of the more free school type of the the uh, program on board, and uh, through the experience of the voyage, but this is a, the experience, right? International experience, and that make uh, encourage them very much. And but also that we are really focused like uh, marine research on board, and because uh, this uh, the global voyage itself is a activity to research ocean is a possible. So and uh, we are now the quite a lot of the different way of the education we commit. Yeah. And is all right. Great, thank you. And yes, anybody watching right now, tuning in on YouTube or any of the live streams, feel free to send in your questions. We'd be happy to take them here live from the Nature Plus, uh, Nature Positive Hub. All right. Uh, anyone else here in the audience has a question or anyone online, feel free to send those in. We'd be happy to answer. Okay, in the meantime, I would also like to ask just each of our speakers, maybe for one last comment or kind of a wrap-up thought um, here at COP26. This is, um, as we mentioned, you know, the monumental COP this year after two years of not being able to gather in person and to uh, make these connections possible. Uh, maybe we can start with Michelle and then go to Pita and then uh, Yoshioka. Sure. Well, first of all, I just want to thank everybody for, for participating, all of you who've come to COP. Um, I know it's not been easy, and uh, your resilience and uh, passion for making a difference is, is so key. Um, for me, it's really important. The last thing I want to say uh, is that, that we all work together. I think we talked a little bit at our dinner last evening about the fact that we can all continue to go down our separate paths, or we can begin to join forces to amplify. And I think that the message I'd like to leave is that it's really critical that we all find a way to connect with one another and amplify everybody's efforts because that's what it's going to take. So thank you and um, I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you to Earth Day as well for, for hosting us. Thank you, thank you, Michelle. And Pita? Thank you. Yeah, I also uh, wanna give a big thank you to uh, Heal Our World and um, who's also sponsored this event and Earth Day as well um, and, and many of the others who've contributed. Um, I was really moved, Michelle, by the part of your video that highlighted that we have the answers. You know, like if we just listen to ourselves and if we listen to our environment and we listen within our ecosystem and we engage with each other and have this really community-centric approach, then we can solve this big challenge. Part of the big problem is that we're so many are being still very colonial. It's like they're in positions of power and they're saying, this is what we need to do. Well, you don't know what it is, is like to be, you know, a kid in Bangladesh whose family has just been displaced because of rising salination in their area, you know, and things like this. And another statistic that I thought was relevant was 55 million people were displaced in 2020 due to climate events. That was more displacement than displacement due to conflict, right? We don't have a mechanism by which to understand how to deal with mass movement of people, you know, and so we need to have a community-centric approach to how we solve these challenges. It has to come from us. And I think that that was one of the most empowering messages uh, of today, Michelle. So thank you. 
Thank you, Peter. Very, very much appreciated. And uh, and I couldn't agree more. Um, I think that this community approach is, is something that will really help us all. So thank you and, and peace both. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, Peter. And Yoshioka. Uh, okay. As uh, also our organization, Peace Boat, is of course a peace organization. And uh, we are really honored that uh, we received the Nobel Peace Laureate, Nobel Peace Prize that uh, as a part of the ICANN International the Campaign for the Ban Nuclear Weapon. And uh, we really would like to emphasize also that Michelle said the financial issue also. But uh, how much expenditure for the military? The huge, huge amount of the military expenditure, the spending in the world. Why we cannot utilize that uh, percentage, some percentage of that uh, renewal, uh, sorry, that uh, military expenditure to the, the crime, climate action and also renewable energy investment? And uh, why not? And uh, the military exercise is always create the kind of the a huge amount of the greenhouse gas also. I think that is uh, now we have to shift this way of the spending the money from the military to the sustainable world. I, I really would like to emphasize that things. And the last point is uh, our friend, the Christiana Figueres. She's the executive director of the Paris Agreement at that time. She always saying, we need stubborn optimism. Stubborn optimism. I love that word. So always we have to have to keep this optimism and to go forward and spend the energy to create a better world. Thank you very much. Thank you, Yoshioka. And yes, I hope that this talk today has inspired all of you and created a little bit more hope, a little bit more positive action that we can take for our future um, and working towards that green economy and really creating an inclusive society that improves human well-being, uh, that builds on social equity and reduces environmental risks, um, and that we can also create a world where humanity and nature live in harmony together. And thank you so much to all of our speakers today for joining us here online. Thank you for um, your positive contributions, for tuning in from all around the world. I think that if there's anything that we've learned this year through technologies that we can continue to connect uh, no matter what, and we can continue to build on those partnerships globally. Yeah, and the Red Sail by the EcoShip together. Yes, we hope to have you all on board sailing with us soon. So thank you again. Thank you to the organizers of this amazing pavilion, which is so beautiful and so welcoming to all of our partners. And we look forward to sailing with you in the future and seeing you tonight at the Marriott Hotel. So please join us uh, this evening. Thank you very much. Thank you.